0: Let me ask you to take a copy of God's Word, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. This morning we're going to look at a familiar text, a familiar theme. It's a text that I've preached before from this stage, it's a theme that I've talked about before from this stage. But it's somewhat of a different angle on this. We've been in a series that we started a few weeks back called Seven. We're just looking through the spring of the seven basic commands of Jesus. The assumption underneath all of this is that no matter how sophisticated your faith may be, occasionally you need to go back to the foundations, don't you? Occasionally, you got to go back to those most rudimentary pieces of what does it mean to follow Jesus. And we talked in that first week about what repentance looks like. Not just the initiatory repentance of coming to faith in Jesus, but that daily repentance. What Martin Luther talked about during the Reformation when he said all of a Christian's life consists of repentance. And what Paul spoke about when he spoke about a daily death to self and a daily rising again to Christ. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at baptism and the role that baptism plays, very critical role, in fact, in initially following Jesus. Today, we're going to look at another command of Jesus that's every bit as much a gift as it is a command. In fact, I think you'll find that to be true throughout this series, that all of the commands that he gives are not just things he gives us to do. They're things he gives to us because he loves us. This isn't just a command to be followed. It's a gift to be received. But if we could be honest with each other, we don't often treat prayer like it's a gift, do we? Oftentimes we treat prayer sort of like a pair of socks at Christmas, don't we? It's you know you know you need it, you know the old ones got holes in them, you get that, but but they're socks. It just doesn't seem on the on the outset to be anything particularly exciting about that. It is given for our benefit, but just like a lot of things in life, those things that are for our benefit aren't always the most fun, they're not always the easiest things to obey. How many of you were one of those really weird kids growing up that actually liked your vegetables? Anybody? A few weirdos. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, I was one of those who didn't. I, I, now I look back on it and I see it was a necessary evil when my mother would put those green beans or that spinach or that whatever that nasty stuff was, green. Why do I have to eat something that's green? I don't understand that. I don't get it now that i'm 47 years old i said that was a necessary evil i'm probably still alive i have the strength i have to a large extent because i was made to do that and she wasn't just making me do it because she was mean she was giving me a gift but it was a necessary evil i gotta tell you though when i was a kid it was just evil wasn't it and so a lot of times we think about this even as parents it makes sense you make your kids go to the doctor and get shots you make them eat their vegetables you send them to school You do all these things that aren't particularly fun for them, but they're things that will empower them. And that's really true as well when we talk about this this subject of prayer. And here's the irony when we talk about prayer. It is one of the most powerful things we can do. In fact, look at what the scriptures, various scriptures say about the efficacy of prayer. This is the gift, not just the command, but the gift that Jesus gives us. James says, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. We do that, by the way. All you got to do is call on us. Um, not All of us may not always be there, but you're going to have some pastors gather around you, and you will see emulated in that moment. If you're about to have a surgery, if you've just been diagnosed with some sort of illness, we're going to obey the Scripture. And it says, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. Did you read that? The prayer of someone who is righteous, of someone who truly loves the Lord, who is truly acting in faith in that moment, (coughs) that prayer is powerful. Furthermore, we're told by Jesus himself in John 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And this is a theme that goes all the way back even prior to the time of Jesus to the Old Testament. The psalmist said in Psalm 107, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And what did he do? He delivered them from their distress. He made, some of you probably got some distress this morning. Would you like to be free from your distress? Jesus has given you a gift, and Jesus has given you a command to use that gift because he loves you and he desires your good, and he wants you delivered from this. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. This is the power of prayer. Now, here's the wicked irony. The church, to a large degree, is sometimes ignorant of prayer and does not know how to pray. In fact, there was a recent poll that that, that that polled both people inside and outside the church that said 8 out of 10 people who live on this continent actually claim to pray on a regular basis. Okay, This is people of all faiths, all religions, even sometimes no faith. I don't know why anybody of no faith would pray, but they do. And they admitted as such in this poll, 73% of that group said that they believe praying can help them. But the problem that I've discovered as a pastor isn't so much that we believe in prayer or we don't believe in prayer. It's mostly the, the wrong-headed things that we often believe about prayer. And these are some things that I have mentioned before as well, but I think they bear repeating. Some people like to see prayer as a spare tire. Now, we just bought a new van Uh, a few weeks, maybe what, five months ago, something like that. And um, can I just be honest with you, even though my father is a mechanic and he drilled into me uh, how to keep up with things on an automobile, I've had that sucker five months. And if we have a flat today, I have no clue where that sucker is. I don't know. You know, it just occurred to me this morning while I was going over, them. It's like, I don't, I don't even know where that thing is. Like, it's, most, a lot of people treat prayer like that, you know, and then, then when you end up on the side of the road in your life, you start looking for it, don't you? Like, we got to do this. It's the last resort kind of thing. I've got a a colleague over in uh, the Baltimore area who's a pastor. He's been my dear friend for a number of years now. And he's got this joke, if we ever get together and have a meal, and and one of us will say, well, it's, it's time to pray. And he'll look and grin and say, has it come to that? And what he means is he's trying to, this is the way a lot of people look at this. It's not the first place I go. It's the place I go when nothing else I've tried seems to work out. And the scriptures tell us in Isaiah 55, 6, to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Don't wait until you're on the side of the road. Don't wait until there's some tragedy. Wouldn't it be great if the Lord Jesus had given you not just a command, but a gift in something like prayer that allowed you to be just as close as you could be to the Lord when that tragedy strikes so you don't have to go looking for him? Don't treat prayer like a spare tire. Number two, don't treat prayer like a microwave meal. Now, I got to tell you, I remember, it was 1979, the first time I ever used a microwave. Under my parents' very close supervision, because I think they were about fifty dollars or $60,000 back then, least in today's money, all right? And so, yeah, we got this microwave, and all of a sudden, every, it was magic, like Popcorn, whatever I wanted to warm up, you know. Then I discovered you could take like solid cheese and put it in there for just a few seconds and you get liquid cheese out. That, like, that became a soft drink, you know. And this is, this is, I mean, microwaves are amazing, aren't they? My wife's gonna be in Vietnam in a couple of months and that's how we're gonna eat. I mean, we're thankful for that. My children are thankful for a microwave oven, but we can all admit, right, you you really shouldn't get all of your nutrition out of a microwave, should you? Yeah, there's no, there's no reason to do that. You know, get, get something that's not been artificially processed in a box, cut some vegetables. I know, I just talked about how I hate them sometimes, but, but do those kinds of things. You can't do everything in a microwave, but a lot of people treat prayer this way because they, they've sort of they sort of integrated prayer into every other part of their 30-minute the segments of their life. You know, we exercise in 30 minutes. We catch up on the news in 30 minutes or commute, well, if you're lucky. It's 30 minutes, right? We want to do everything just really, really, really quick. And so a microwave meal prayer is a fast-track solution to a long-term problem. How many times have I seen a life of sin get itself revealed in someone, and, and everything around them starts to crumble. And the first thing they do is something they haven't done throughout that entire cycle that might have actually kept them from that moment. They go to their knees. But what they're expecting is that those few minutes on their knees somehow is going to solve and unravel everything that they've tied up in knots and taken years to do. Psalm 27 14 says, Wait for the Lord in a microwave society we don't like that command do we we don't like to wait wait for the Lord be strong and let your heart take courage and then just in case just in case we missed it wait for the Lord it comes twice in this sentence don't treat prayer like a spare tire don't treat it like a microwave meal number 3 don't treat prayer like a christmas wish list Okay, this has become very popular, uh, particularly in the Word of Faith movement that teaches that you're always supposed to be happy and healthy and wealthy. And that mindset trains people to believe that, that prayer is sort of like sitting on Santa's lap. You get your list together, and you go to him, and then whatever you want, at the end of the day, it ends up all being about... You and James warns us of this kind of prayer. He said, You ask in James 4 3, and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. When you start from the standpoint of it's all about me and I want what I want, you ain't going to get what you want. God doesn't work that way. And when you look at prayer this way, you're going to, it's going to lead you to a failed prayer life. Finally, don't treat prayer as a presidential pardon. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is, prayer is, I can do anything I want, I can live however I want, I will ask Jesus for forgiveness, and I'll get it. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, which is not really grace at all. It assumes you can just live sinfully without consequences. I think the most colorful uh, repudiation of that is found in Ezekiel 23, and they shall return their lewdness upon you and you shall bear the penalty for your sinful idolatry and you shall know that I am the Lord God. Prayers are not a platform on which you can stand and sin and then get away with your sin simply because you're standing presumptively on a platform of prayer. You can't do that. Will God forgive if you truly repent? Of course he will. Are there consequences? Yes. Can you escape the consequences? No. No. And depending on the level of sin, some of this may, you may end up paying for this for the rest of your life. And when people think of prayer like this, a spare tire, a microwave meal, a wish list, a presidential pardon, it's, they're doomed to a, fair, a failed prayer life. You treat it like a spare tire, but you still feel far from God. You treat it like a, you fire up the microwave, but you don't get instantaneous answers, and so you feel betrayed. You bring Santa your wish list, and then you get offended when he starts marking stuff off of it that you don't need. You sin with impunity. And then you wonder, why am I suffering in my sins? I thought God would forgive. And then the conclusion is, well, this prayer thing just must not work. It just must not work. That is a failed prayer life that is the direct result of not obeying Jesus' command to pray by your ignorance, my ignorance, of what he's actually telling us to do. Like I said, this is a gift but it's sort of like eating your vegetables. It's sort of like getting a shot. It's not always a pleasant. It's not an easy thing to do. A few of you, like those of you who raised your hand and I made fun of you, and thank you for being good humored with your pastor, who said, yeah, I was one of those, those kind of out of the ordinary kids and I loved to eat my vegetables. There's a few of you as well who you have no struggle at all with this. You are prayer warriors. Your pastor comes to you, not the other way around, when prayer is needed. You know why? Because your pastor isn't one of those. This is a struggle for me. This is a hard thing. God wired me as a type A personality. Go out there, get it done. The commands of going and preaching and doing and serving. I got no problem with that. But you know what I really struggle with? is when I see commands in scripture like, wait, be quiet, shut up, hold on, hold it, wait, wait. Oh, I hate that. I hate it. And you know what's happening when I'm praying? I'm waiting. I'm waiting on God to do something that I can't do. And if the enemy can distract me from that and get me on a bunch of other nonsense, he's done something. He has neutered the effect I can have, and he does that on whole churches. Look at this quote from Samuel Chadwick. The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing of prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toils, mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. There is a way to pray that taps into the power of God that changes Everything but there's also false assumptions about prayer and that then leads to false prayer look at these words from Jesus that immediately precede what pastor Bob read to us earlier in the service and When you pray you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street Corners that they may be seen by others Truly I say to you they have received their reward When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Brothers and sisters, I would submit that in this day and age of celebrity driven Christianity, one of the reasons we don't like to pray is because it doesn't come with a microphone and a spotlight, it is done in the dark. And that is where God does his most powerful work. And if we want to see him work, we've got to do that. Jesus goes on, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Okay? We're not living in the, in the 17th century anymore. These and thou's are not only no longer appropriate, they might even be pagan. Don't heap up empty phrases. God some. I don't want to hear that. That's what pagans do Gentiles do that for they think that they will be heard for their many words How many of you got that relative that crazy uncle or that somebody and that you go to the family reunion or Christmas dinner? or mother's Day's coming up and you know He's going to be there and they're going to call on him to pray and you're just going to bow your head and go Oh Lord, please let someone not miss a birthday All right Long empty let there's and I'm not saying this necessarily it's not wrong to pray long prayers Okay but it is wrong to think that there's a length or that there are invocations. It's just... Our our Catholic friends, actually, when they observe the Lord's Supper, they believe that it becomes the body and the blood of the Lord. And they believe it happens when the priest issues the the Latin phrase, hoc est corpus meo. This is my body. And, And the belief is that it turns into other well, people like us who, who don't don't see it that way because frankly that's not what scripture teaches. And there was a there was a, a humorous thing that kind of came out of that. Hoc est corpus meum over time turned into hocus pocus. A way of kind of making fun of that belief. And then you you go to a, muse, a magician and he sees that, he gets up on stage and he says He says hocus pocus, right? There was an empty hat, now there's a rabbit in it. There was a scarf, now it's gone. There was a flag, now it's gone. There was nothing, now there's a dove. Why? Hocus pocus. This is what Jesus is taking aim at. He's saying "Don't, don't think that empty phrases trigger something like some kind of magic word. That's not how prayer works. That's not how it happens. So how do we pray? Well, let me give you four things here. Number one, pray For the glory of God. Jesus opens up in verses 9 and 10. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it begins with a praise for God and an identification that he is hallowed. He's not a a wish. It's not we want you to be this way. It's a declaration of a soul that's been redeemed that this is who I am. And the significance here is that before you and I can truly pray... Jesus is teaching us that we've got to develop an accurate picture of who we're praying to. I was teaching at an undergrad institution many years ago, and it was one of those recruiting weekends where a lot of rising freshmen that had already kind of decided uh, to attend this particular institution, and they were going to come in, and and they were going to meet with all the higher-ups and the number of us on the faculty. And I was in just a random conversation with the president of this institution when this young lady walks up she's about 18 years old she's getting ready to graduate high school and immediately she launches into her sat scores and her major and what she's going to do with her career and what kind of salary she expects and just boom 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 and he and i are just going mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like there was no how are you what are you doing who are you it was just hi my name is and then launches into all this stuff no lie five to seven minutes at least and, and she gets right in the middle of it and all of a sudden it occurs to her she doesn't even realize who she's talking to and she actually looks at the president of the university and she says, so what do you do here? Really unassuming guy. He just smiled and he said, well, I just, I, I do whatever's needed. And he just sort of left it at that. And I wonder how often in our prayers do we forget who we're talking to? How often is it that we take that approach, we we launch immediately in this sort of self-centered talk and hey, guilty right here. Lord, get me out of this. Lord, I gotta have some help. Lord, I'm not saying that it's wrong to call out to Him. I'm, what is your general attitude toward prayer? What is it? Because if it's like that, it's always going to be desperate. It'll always be desperate. You, this is the wrong way to begin prayer if you want it to be effective. And, but but what's interesting is if you actually begin with remembering Father in heaven. In fact, I want, you to, I want you to do that right now. I want you to just conjure up in your head the worst issue that's in front of you right now, whatever your dilemma is. You may have just gotten this horrible report from the doctor. You may have a kid that's breaking your heart. You, you may have parents that don't follow the Lord, and you're in here, and you're struggling in your faith because you've got no spiritual leadership in your home. You may have a job that's about to end. I don't know what it is, a marriage that's in trouble, whatever it is, I want you to think of that right now. Now I want you to close your eyes, and I just want you to hear these words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You can open your eyes now. I have been amazed at my own life and how often just doing that alone seems to solve a lot. Like I haven't even gotten an answer. But I have reset my own disposition in accordance with the commands of Jesus that tell me how I ought to sit before the throne of my Creator and my Redeemer. And then very closely coupled with that is this desire for His rule There is a literal kingdom that I believe is coming, but the most immediate focus is that that kingdom would be not just the destiny of the world, but the desire of my heart. And this is how I get started on the right foot when I pray. You know, scientists tell us that 98% of the solar system, the mass of the solar system, is in the sun. Think about that for a minute. Think about everything that that our solar system consists of and the fact that once you get past the sun, you've only got 2% mass from that point all the way to Pluto. I don't even know. Is Pluto a planet again? Where are we going with that now, right? So all that, but whatever it is, planet, whatever it's said, it's part of the solar system, right? So all the other planets, the asteroids, the moons, everything, including big old Jupiter out there that's like 300 times the size of planet Earth, all of that's only 2%. So if you take anything other than the sun and you put it at the center of the solar system, you don't have a solar system anymore, do you? The result is chaos, What Jesus is helping us do here is to get the right person at the center of our prayer life. Start by invoking and asking for the glory of God. And then once you do that, you can pray for the favor of God. Now, this involves a couple of things. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread, our bread for the coming day. In other words, it's not just that I recognize who he is. I recognize I am wholly dependent upon him. Now, all of a sudden, a lot of things I think I need aren't as important to me any longer. Uh, I crashed a a meeting of our young adult ministry a couple Wednesday nights ago, and they were talking about Jesus saying to his disciples when he said, it is easier for a rich man to go through, it is easier for a camel, excuse me, to go through the, you'd like to see a rich man go through the eye of a needle, wouldn't you? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're like, wow. Does that mean it's impossible for, no? And so we talked about that. We're like, no, there were were lots of wealthy people in the Bible that loved Jesus, that served Jesus. Jesus had a place to be buried because a wealthy guy gave, it's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to have truckloads of money. But the warning here is that most people will not be part of that infamous 1% because they can't handle it. They can't handle it because immediately, you know, I'm I'm gonna become I'm going to become dependent on something other than my God. Now, of that 1%, you've got people that are righteous, that God has gifted with extraordinary ability. And if you are one of those people, God's given you the ability to to create employment for other people. He's given you the ability not just to give away a lot of what you have for the benefit of others, but also combine that with fiscal wisdom to know when that giveaway is actually gonna accomplish something versus when you're just throwing it away. But then you've got other people who get really super duper wealthy and they're not godly people and they depend on their wealth. And all that does is drive that dependency deeper into that. Material wealth. Translation Most of us who are in the 99% should thank God that we're in the 99%. We really should. Because, and this is a a question I asked those young people I said, Imagine that you got a message from heaven, and your future from now until the day you die was mapped out in front of you, and you saw that every single need would be met and you saw how it would be met and that you would always have enough money and that your health would always be good and that you would never have any issues with your marriage or your kids or your job or anything. You're going to have smooth sailing from here to the day you die. What would that do to your walk with God? If you knew that was going to happen and you knew how it was going to happen, I think that's something we got to think about. And that's what Jesus is pointing us to here. Depend upon the Lord for your provision. And then the ultimate provision is given in verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So this forgiveness for sins comes in conjunction with the capacity to forgive other people. Now that doesn't mean that you're a doormat. It doesn't mean you continually allow people to abuse you. If they've abused you, what forgiveness means is simply to let it go let it go. Don't try to be getting back at them. Don't hold a grudge against them. And for, for most people, it's not even an abuse thing. It's just, I offended you, you offended me. Let's, let's, let's just forgive each other. Let's move on together. You know the best way to do that? Pray together. I have found it is difficult to impossible to hold a grudge against somebody that I'm praying with, particularly if it's genuine prayer and not that fake stuff that Jesus talked about earlier. This is what God is calling us to do. Effective prayer relieves our anxiety because it brings us to a place of complete trust in God. And it also relieves us of our animosity because the forgiveness God has shown us, the cost of which we just memorialized, empowers us to forgive others. Pray for the glory of God. Pray for the favor of God. Thirdly, pray for the holiness of God. And this is verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, this is an interesting passage, because James tells us, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Well, if that's what James says, then, then what does Jesus mean when he says, do not lead us into temptation? What it means is that you and I are to pray, Lord, don't permit us to be attracted by what is unpleasing to you. Take away our desire for sin and rebellion against you. You Once you've centered your heart on God and who he is and set your priorities on his kingdom and and put your trust completely in his provision, you, you don't want to desire sin and rebelliousness. You want to walk in sync with the spirit of God. You want to be holy. You want to stand out in a way that doesn't just merely draw attention to you, but redirects the world's attention to your creator. And that's what's being invoked here. And I got to tell you, one of the ways we know that too many who claim to follow Jesus don't have effective, powerful prayer lives is they don't pray this and they don't lead. They don't need this. They don't live this. Many people don't need anybody to lead them to temptation. I don't know about you, but I do a pretty good job leading myself there. i It's amazing, isn't it? It's like a vending machine. If something in that vending machine costs four quarters, and I don't need anything in that vending machine, especially that infernal thing out in the hall, I don't need anything in there, but I walk right up to it with four quarters in my pocket, I'm much more likely to get something that I don't need and might even bring harm to me than I am if I've given one away and lost another one and left another one backstage. You get what I'm saying? Order your life in such a way that you don't find yourself in those positions. And the prayer is basically Father, I've been going out with the girls a lot and leaving my husband at home, and I'm finding other men at those places we're going attractive, and I don't need to. Don't let me fall for that. Don't let my marriage get destroyed, Father. I found that old girlfriend on social media and my wife doesn't know that we've connected and exchanged some private messages and I, don't let me go. You know, maybe you shouldn't have gone there in the first place. Dummy. This is what we're being asked to pray for. Temptation cannot have any victory over you unless you allow it to you are filled with the holy spirit of god you are filled with the same spirit of the resurrected jesus who conquered death hell and the grave if you fall for temptation the only person to blame is in the mirror you and i have every resource at our disposal to live in the way that god is calling us to live effective prayer seeks the holiness of god To be kept from things that will make us weak and keep us weak. And to be kept in the things that will make us stronger. Now, here's one final thing. We have to pray in view of God's power. Pray acknowledging the power of God. Now, I want to read 1 John 5 here. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request That we have asked of him in traditional liturgical worship this prayer is repeated often our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil and then there's this one final phrase that gets capped on to the end of it for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever Amen. Now, if you've got a good translation, like a reliable one, English translation of Scripture, and you look down at that passage, you'll notice it's not there. Or if it is there, it's footnoted under the bottom. That's because that text showed up. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. It showed up somewhere around the 4th or the 5th century, or a little bit later, actually. It's a textual variant that was it was edited later it Wasn't actually a part of the original Bible, but those who added it if you talk to the textual critics will tell you that they were likely seeking to bring us back to where we started when Jesus told us to pray beginning our father who is in heaven Hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done. Doesn't that match? that liturgical saying yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever doesn't it match what we read, what we just read in, in 1 John? And this is what Jesus would commend to us, that we always pray. All of this is done in view of the power of God. It would be kind of useless to pray to a God who was impotent to solve your problem, wouldn't it? Isn't that a waste of time? Useless. But, but like this, like the beginning of Jesus' prayer is a simple statement of you are able. I've told you all the story before of our good friends who came to see us many years ago when we were in seminary, and we were in downtown Louisville, Kentucky, eating at a restaurant, and their little girl, her name was Emily. She's in her mid-20s now, but she was about two. And we're in the front, and there's this big window, and we're waiting in line to eat at this place called Spaghetti Factory. It was wonderful. But there was this big window. I like to eat. If you're a visitor with us i like to eat case you know everybody else kind of knows that so there's this big window and there are people eating on the other side of it and emily starts putting on a show i don't know if she was taking dance or whatever she's twirling around she's having a ball and they're all laughing and they're applauding and it's great And in the middle of that i'm getting a little bit silly with her out there and i'm letting her pirouette and we're doing some things and i don't know what possessed me to ask this question but i got down here and i said emily and she looked up at me great big old blue eyes i said do you know how to get home from here she's 400 miles from home in downtown Louisville, Kentucky. Okay? So you gotta get out of downtown through an intersection that the, the locals lovingly refer to as Spaghetti Junction. That should tell you about everything you need to know. Then you got to get on Interstate 64 and you got to go east to Lexington. And then you got to get on I 75 and come south down to Knoxville, Tennessee. And then you got to get on Interstate 40 and go east again through the North Carolina mountains. And then Interstate 26 down into my home state of South Carolina to Spartanburg. And then you got to find your way off the interstate and through all these different roads and side roads and into my friend's subdivision before we finally get there. I'm dealing with a two year old. She doesn't even know how to get across the street without getting hit. But when I said to you, you know how to get home? She went, uh-huh. Like, no problems. I said, oh, well, okay, you have my attention. How do you get home? And she just did this. Toward her daddy. She didn't need to know anything else. She had a confidence that this would happen. This is Jesus command it is his gift that we would acknowledge the power of God when we pray that you can go to your knees and say I don't know what's going to happen with my child I don't know what's going to happen with my job. I don't know what's going to happen with my health. I don't know what's going to happen with my addiction or my loved one's addiction. I don't know how I'm going to navigate this phase of life. I don't know how I'm going to pay for all of this. I don't know, but I have a father and he is in heaven and his name is hallowed and his kingdom is coming and he is mine and I am his. That is the point at which you're ready to pray some stuff that will peel the freaking paint off the wall But you got to get there first The purpose of prayer is not to change God Like we're strong arming him Blackmailing him Like the relationship is transactional somehow The purpose of prayer is to change everything else Starting with us And it's the kind of prayer that Jesus has been speaking of. It's that kind of prayer that moves mountains, that changes everything. Some of you don't think you're capable of that because you're not very eloquent. Remember, don't heap up empty phrases like Gentiles. I had people tell me, but I don't like praying in front of people. Well, Well, here, you're not talking to them. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. I remember the first time I ever met this guy, Gene, I caught him out behind, it was a, a, a some daycare space that we were renting, and uh, we, were had a, we had, it was all teenagers that night, about 200 plus of them in a church that we had planted, and, and I, I caught him out behind the building with a half-empty bottle of vodka. And so there's no reasoning with him, I mean, it's not that I didn't love him, but I'm like, okay, you gotta go. Do, do you leave on your own accord? You know what, that bottle's half-empty, let me call you a ride, right? And so that was the first time. A month later, he came to Jesus. The words that came out of his mouth did not sound like they belonged in a church. His exact words were, as he bowed his head. You know, sometimes, I, I, I'm not all that crazy about prefabricated prayers, like tell telling this guy, or, or repeat after me. I mean, I just gotta. it's fine to do that. I don't, I don't think that's wrong. It's just, I you know what, if, if God the Holy Spirit is working in that individual's life, God the Holy Spirit is going to tell that individual what to say. I don't need to. And, and so oftentimes I just go, all right, Gene, let's do it, man. We're sitting on the front steps. He bows his head and he said, God, I am a sorry son of a... And I went... It's true, okay. Um, Like, it's true of me. It's true of everybody. I don't deserve this, is what he was saying. You pray the most eloquent, eloquent prayer from the highest, loftiest spaces, and God will not respond in the radical way that he did on the front steps of that daycare center that day when that newborn baby cried out. You don't have to be eloquent, but you do have to believe, and you do have to center your life on the God who created you so that what we see here is more than than just this liturgical rote that we pray when we come into church, but it truly is the cry of our hearts. Bow your heads with me and repeat after me. Our Father, who art in heaven,